Welcome to the Emmaus Fellowship Teaching Podcast. We trust you find this encouraging. Emmaus Fellowship is located at 205 North Pine Street in Woodland Park, Colorado. Our phone number is 719-687-6061. We trust you find this encouraging as you pour over God's Word with us. Gave me a voice and a song Taught me how to sing going to turn to James 2. James 2, that's right, crossing a threshold into the second chapter of James. Isn't that exciting? I really enjoyed actually um, teaching on James, or as my father-in-law likes to remind you or and me, his name is Jacob. What? Yaakov. I don't even know how to say it. So Yaakov, so it's Jacob, basically. Um, his original name was Yaakov. If he, if he was here and speaking Hebrew, he would say that. And so would all the other Jameses in the Bible. Uh, so Jacob, as we would say it in English. James, as they translated it, I have no clue why, but that's what it is. So let's read Yaakov, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. My dear brothers and sisters, fellow believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how could we say that we have faith in him and yet we favor one group of people over another? Suppose an influential man comes into your worship meeting wearing gold rings and expensive clothing and also a homeless man in shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the rich man in expensive clothes and say, here's a seat of honor for you right up in the front, but you turn and say to the poor beggar dressed in rags, you can stand over there, sit over there on the floor in the back. Then you've demonstrated gross prejudice among yourselves and used evil standards of judgment. So listen carefully, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world's eyes to be those who are rich in faith? And won't they be the heirs of the kingdom realm he promised to those who love him? But yet you insult and shun the poor in your efforts to impress the rich. Isn't it the wealthy who exploit you and drag you into court? Aren't they the very ones who blaspheme the beautiful name of the one you now belong to? Your calling is to fulfill the royal law of love as given to us in the scripture. You must love and value your neighbor as you love and value yourself. For keeping this law is a noble way to live. But when you show prejudice, you commit sin, and you violate this royal law of love. I want to pray and let Jesus speak to you in this scripture. 
Jesus, thank you for your kind words of encouragement to us this morning. And they may even feel like a challenge. But Lord, we just want to thank you that in this, you're bringing us towards truth that will set us free. And so we welcome your words. We welcome the word. And we thank you that you, as the word, are speaking. And we want to be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. And so help what we hear inform what we do. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, if God wants to speak to you about your relationship with the poor or your relationship with the rich, then I'll let him do that. That's not what I'm going to do today. I'm actually going to capitalize on the first uh, verse of this where it says, if you are believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and you have faith in him and yet you favor one group of people over another, how can you do that? Those do not go together. So I'm actually going to focus more on this overarching sense of one group of people over another. Okay? Um, Now, it makes sense to me why James would teach related to the rich and the poor because if you remember... James is writing this letter to to dispersed believers in Jesus Christ. These were people who had been like born and raised in Jerusalem. These are people who had come into faith in Jesus Christ. And then because of persecution, they actually had to leave their homeland. So these are displaced people. Some of them left family like Uh, legacy. Some of them left land that had been in their family line for generations. Some of them left a lot of wealth. Some of them had to flee and move to parts of the world where they did not have like favorable uh, like reputation or family ties or community networking that would afford them like a hand up in their community, and many of them were poor. Many of them were probably still wealthy. Some of them took their uh, riches with them. I'm just saying that uh, it's interesting to me, and there's also a lot in here related to how it's not just about wealth. It's not just about money. It's actually about, you know, like political connection based on the power and influence of those who have. So there is some of that woven in here, but that's not actually what I'm going to talk about so much. The title of this message is actually a question. And the question, um, it's kind of like a backdoor approach to what James is here saying. And the question is this, who are your Ninevites? Now, before we go into that too deep, I want to ask the question, What does God hate? It it almost seems like in our our, uh, culture, in in our um, postmodernism and and thoughts related to um, relationships with God, relationships with other people, like, could it be said that God actually hates? Uh, I want to draw some 
interesting, like, I want to draw from the Old Testament and bring us into the New. I want to draw from Proverbs. I want to draw from Psalms. I want to draw from the stories related to God's interaction and relationship with people that we could, if we read the Scripture, we could say that God hates them. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. So clear. There's no shadow in this. It literally says this. There are six evils God truly hates. There's no second guessing this. And then it says, and the seventh is an abomination to him. All right, you ready for the list? This is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These are... These are the answers to the question, what does God hate? Putting others down while considering yourself superior. Spreading lies and rumors. Spilling the blood of the innocent. Plotting evil in your heart towards another. Gloating over doing what's plainly wrong. Spouting lies and false testimony. And stirring up strife within the community. These are entirely despicable to God. You thought there was going to be a different list, didn't you? And Proverbs 8.13 tells us that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So it's like, okay, so we have these connections here in Proverbs where this is what God hates. And for us as people, like if we're going to be with God, then we have to hate what's evil. We have to... We have to hate the things that God hates. And this list is what God hates, and it's associated with the behavior of people. So that begs the next question. Who does God hate? In a word, evildoers. Psalm 34, 16 tells us, The face of the Lord is against evildoers to eliminate the memory of them from the earth. What? And then he sends Jonah to Nineveh, a city of 120,000 evildoers. Jonah 3.10. This is after the story plays out. You know, we know the story of Jonah, right? I mean, if you don't, I'm going to give you a quick snapshot He gets sent by God reluctantly to go to Nineveh. He rebels against God because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he actually hates these people. Because like a good follower of God who fears the Lord, he hates what God hates, and he hates who God hates. And so he goes the opposite direction, and then the people of the ship that he's on are like, something's not right here. Like, we're all going to die because of this situation we find ourselves in so they cast the lots and they find out Jonah it's you you're the reason why we're all about to perish and so they toss the man overboard and he gets gobbled up by a huge fish and he's in that belly of the fish for three days three nights he has a come to Jesus meeting and the fish vomits him out onto the shore. And then he walks for days, and he does what God told him to do. He goes to Nineveh, and he begins to preach, and he's not a real inspired preacher here. 
It's kind of like, I'll do what I have to. But the Spirit of the Lord was using his words and convicting the people of Nineveh. And it says this in Jonah 3.10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented from the disaster that he had declared, like he was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he's like, no, I see them. And so he did this. He did not bring disaster to them. And then check this out. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. So here you have a God follower who hates what God hates. And then when God shows compassion on the people who were quote-unquote evildoers, Jonah gets angry. And later on, God asked Jonah, should I not also have compassion on Nineveh? Now, allow me to create a bridge between Jonah and Jesus, right? Actually, Jesus creates this bridge. He does it in Matthew 12, verse 38 and onward. And it goes something like this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. So basically saying, you're evildoers. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of a sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So how did God approach the evildoers of Nineveh with compassion? By sending someone. How did Jesus approach the evildoers of his, of his day? Let's talk for a minute about, um, let's say, the Samaritans. Because they would have been the other group that would be like, um, in the context of Jesus' culture and the people that he was talking with, the Samaritans were the others. You know, the others, the thems. There's the us's, and then there's the thems. God is for us's. He loves us's. Luke 9, 52. Jesus sent messengers ahead of him as envoys to a village of the others, the Samaritans. But as his disciples approached the village, the people of the village turned them away. They would not allow Jesus to enter, for he was on his way to worship in Jerusalem. And when the disciples of Yaakov and John, when the disciples Jacob and John, James and John, you get where I'm going. All right, so when they realized what was happening, they returned to Jesus and they said, Lord, okay, by the way, J James and John, they're known as the sons of thunder. Okay? These guys knew how to make a noise. And they were not happy about this. They were not happy that the Samaritans had turned Jesus away. And so they went to Jesus and they said this, Lord, if you wanted to, you could command fire to fall down from heaven just as Elijah did and destroyed all these wicked people. You could do it. And then verse 
55, Jesus rebuked them sharply and said, Don't you realize what spews from your hearts when you say this thing? The Son of Man did not come to destroy life, but to bring life to the earth. Jesus! Allow me to read a short quote from the pastor and author Brian Zond. The sons of thunder, James and John, wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritan village who refused to welcome Jesus. In their petition, they were able to cite Scripture because Elijah had done this. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, You do not know of what spirit you are of. The question isn't, can we find it in the Bible? But can we find it in Jesus? If we weaponize the Bible to hurt other people, we do not have the spirit of the Lord. Yay, Brian. I like that quote. So Jesus' relationship with the Samaritans, as you'll remember in John 4, starting in verse 5, when Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village near the field of Yaakov, Jacob, that he had given to his son Joseph, wearied from his long journey, he sat on the edge of Jacob's well, and he sent his disciples to the village to buy some food, for it was already in the afternoon, and soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And she replied, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? For the Jews have no dealings with the others, the Samaritans. And Jesus replied, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give to you, you'd be asking me for a drink and I would give you living water. And the woman replied, but sir, you don't even have a bucket and the well is very deep. So where will you find this, quote, living water? Do you really think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank it from it himself along with his children and his livestock? So that's a great question, and the answer is yes. Because Jesus says this, If you drink from Jacob's well, you will be thirsty again, but anyone who drinks from the living water that I give, they will never be thirsty again. For when you drink the water I give... It becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit flooding you with endless life. Come on. This is so good, right? Can we just like, okay, there's a contrast here. There's a, there's a way of interpreting Scripture that would justify hate, that would justify wanting to burn it down or them down. Enter Jesus, and he's like, I'm not here to burn anything down. I'm here to give you a fountain of the Holy Spirit flooding you with endless life. In verse 39, now from that city of the Samaritans, they believed in him because the word of the woman who had testified. So this woman went back, she, started, she became an evangelist, a better evangelist than Jonah, I can tell you that. He told me everything that I have done 
And then when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they stayed with him for days. Many more believed because of Jesus' words. And there they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say, but because of what we hear for ourselves. And we know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. Of what spirit do we categorize people in our hearts? Remember James 2, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, fellow believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how could we say that if we have faith in him, or how can we say that if we followed the ways of Jesus, that we have, like, we, we cannot say that and have favor over one group of people over another? And then um, he goes on to say, if you do this, then according to James 2, verse 4, you've demonstrated gross prejudice amongst yourself and used evil standards of judgment. Mm. If not the Spirit of Christ, then by what spirit do we hold standards to judge another person? Well, it says it here that it would be evil. So, the, back to the question. Who are your Ninevites? Who are your Samaritans? While you're thinking about that, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, for several years, um, I would go on these walkabouts. That's what I came to call them. And basically, it was like following the wild goose, as the Celtic spiritual Christians would say, that the Holy Spirit was the wild goose, and that's where that phrase comes, chasing the wild goose. Um, so following the Holy Spirit on these, quote, walkabouts, and they were typically about a week long. And I've shared many of these stories with you, but it was several years where Tiffany and I had this, um, just this thing where she would be like, yeah, go, be free. And I would take a backpack, and sometimes I would pair it with another, like, travel. Like, for example, the first time I did this, I had traveled to California and then I did a walkabout all throughout the, the Arizona desert into the Havasupai uh, Canyon and all that kind of stuff. And then there was another time where I went into the canyon lands in Utah. And then there was this, it was kind of an interesting like, experience for me. And it was several years where I decided once a year I was going to just hone my capacity to follow the Holy Spirit. Literally, take my backpack, throw it on my back, walk out my front porch and be like, where are we going? Now, if I had traveled, then it was usually like after the event, then I would, the next morning, I would step out on the porch and be like, where are we going? And this particular story that I want to share with you, I was in Australia. And I had gone to Australia to do a wedding. And I had thought that maybe what I was going to do was rent a motorcycle and ride it through the outback of Australia. And so once I got to the rental place and I discovered how much they were going to charge me for all of this insurance, and I asked them, do I actually need this insurance? And they're like, trust me, mate. A kangaroo will jump out and try to kill you. <laughs> so I decided, okay, maybe I'll take half of that money and I'll just buy a plane ticket and I'll fly down to Tasmania. So I flew down to Tasmania following the wild goose. And I get down to Tasmania, and I go into the gear shop because I had my backpack on, but I couldn't fly with my, like, combustible fuel. So I'd go to the gear shop, 
and I had to buy the fuel that I was going to use to do the overland track, which is throughout the island of Tasmania. That's what I thought I was going to do. But when I got to the gear shop and they were asking me about my gear and I told them about my tarp that I had and my stove that I had and my this that I had, they're like, wait, you don't have a tent? It's like, no, I have a tarp. Have you ever heard of a jack jumper? I was like, nope. And they described what it was. It's like this ant that's like five times more venomous than a hornet or whatever. He goes, have you ever, ever had a, an allergic reaction to a bee sting? I was like, yeah. He goes, trust me, mate. That jack jumper is going to kill you. <laughs> so I was like, strike two. Not going on the overland track. So now I'm kind of dejected. I have my fish and chips, and that made me feel better. And I walked down to the pier in Hobart, and I saw this wooden tall ship from the 1800s. And it had a, like a, a banner hanging off the side that had the name of it, like Outbound Voyages, and it had a phone number. And so I went over to the payphone. You guys remember those? <laughs> and I dialed it up. And I was like, so I'm standing here looking at your boat. It's beautiful. When are you guys going to sail out? And they were like, tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. And I was like, do you have room for another? And they're like, yeah, if you don't mind working. And so I paid them a little bit for the food I was going to eat. And I hopped on the boat the next morning. And I met the first mate. And uh, we were going to sail down the Southeast Cape, Southwest Cape, whatever Cape that is, and, um, and we were going to go to Captain Cook's kind of a staff, whatever. It was just like a dream. I was like, yes, sign me up. And so, um, so I get on the boat the next morning, and the boat takes out through the harbor, and it's about getting ready to go to open water. And, um, and that's when I met the captain of the ship. Now, if you've heard the story, bear with me. Sorry. Uh, but some of you, this might be a fresh story for you. But I had been hearing that Captain Sarah was going to come on deck in just a little bit. So I waited, and sure enough, Captain Sarah came up on deck. Captain Sarah had an Adam's apple. And Captain Sarah used to be Captain Henry of the Royal Navy. And Captain Sarah was the first trans that I had ever met. And she was in charge of my boat that I was on. And the only way out was to jump over. <laughs> and I didn't. And I was like, Holy Spirit, I'm following you. You led me here. I believe that. You've got something for me. And so it was an amazing journey of working really hard, meeting the other folks on the crew, Bunking with these two Scottish guys who were literally like on day two because they weren't allowed to bring their alcohol. They were in DTs. And they actually, that's no joke, actually. They were about ready to like crack. And, um, and so the captain literally had to give them alcohol because they were so dependent on it. So here I am. My bunk mates are these two old Scottish guys who can't go a day without being intoxicated. And Captain Sarah is in charge of the ship. 
And the other people on the crew, I think were either on probation. I don't know. They were awesome, though. It was such an amazing experience. And, um, and so day, day two, now just to timeline this, it's probably going back about 14 years, 15 years, right? So I'm on a boat full of others. And uh, I think it was the second or maybe third night, as I remember it, I had a dream. And in that dream, Jesus started asking me some questions. And the gist of it was Jesus asking me how he related to lepers in his day. And while everyone else was giving them a clear path, as they had to announce themselves or they had to be colonized out and separated from the rest of humanity, Jesus reminded me that he stepped towards them and he placed his hands on them and he brought transformation, restoration, healing equal to them as he would anyone else. And he goes, Chris, basically, the gist was, Chris, you're living on a boat right now full of modern-day lepers. That was it. That started my, like, trajectory towards a deconstruction of a purity culture that I had been raised in that demonized people who were different, that put people in the other's category all the time, that made very little room for me to have relationship with people who did not think the way that I did, who did not behave the way that I did, who were different than me, and it set me on a trajectory towards understanding the heart of compassion that Jesus brought to the earth towards the others. And basically, out of James here, what I'm drawing from is like, we cannot have an us and them mentality, whether it's with the poor and the rich, Or fill in the blank. I find it interesting, you know, when Jesus sees your Ninevites, when Jesus sees your Samaritans, when Jesus sees the people that you have a struggle with. Now, let me just kind of like, again, not to draw like um, any specific group out, but I just want to help make this connection, because this may seem a little ethereal to some, so I want to make it a little more concrete, because maybe your Ninevites are pro-choice. Maybe your Ninevites are in the LGBTQ community. Maybe your Ninevites are progressive left-wing. Maybe your Ninevites are actually radical right-wing evangelicals. I don't know who your Ninevites are, but Jesus is a great deconstructionist, And the Sermon on the Mount points to his capacity to say, look, you have always heard it said this, that, and the other thing, but I am telling you this. Jesus as the restorer, not the destroyer. What is Jesus restoring on the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, there's many things that Jesus is restoring, but one of the things that I think Jesus is restoring and we're going to get to it here in Matthew 5, is the compassionate desire of God the Father towards people. 
And one of the things that Jesus is deconstructing in this sermon is the prejudice of man that uses division to justify evil standards of judgment. And so Matthew 5, starting in verse 43, your ancestors have also been taught, so again, you've always heard it said this, this is what's come down through your family lineage, this is the belief system of your family culture, This is the stuff you've always known since you were a little baby. Love your neighbors. Hate the one who hates you. However, here's Jesus, the deconstructionist. But let me pause there. There's a difference between a deconstructionist and a restorer. And let me just say that Jesus is a restorer. A deconstructionist is willing to come in with a wrecking ball. And a restorer is is willing to find a priceless piece of art that had been smeared over with varnish and debris and junk over the course of many decades or generations. And the restorer painstakingly, patiently, and carefully removes the grime to reveal the priceless piece of art. So what is Jesus restoring There has been grime. There has been all sorts of junk that has been added to what God's intention has always been, now revealed in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the priceless piece of art. And again, it's the compassionate desire of God the Father towards people. Period. So I say to you, love your enemy and bless the one who curses you. Do something wonderful for the one who hates you and respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. Priceless. For that will reveal your identity as children of your heavenly father. You're going to reflect this priceless peace when you do this. He is kind to all. I'm going to say that again. He is kind to all by bringing the sunshine to warm them and the rainfall to refresh. Whether a person does what is good or evil, what reward do you deserve if you only love the lovable? Don't even the tax collectors do that? (laughs) I love that little play there because it's like, they're the others. (laughs) How are you any different from others if you limit your kindness only to your, quote, friends? The people who fit into your sphere? The people that you feel most comfortable with? Don't even the ungodly do that? But since you are children of a perfect father in heaven, become perfect like him. Reflect that priceless piece of art that, as you read during worship, lives in you. And it's no longer you who live, but Christ, the essence of who Christ is, who lives in you and through you. So, friends, let's listen to James and allow the Holy Spirit to search out any favoritism we might have, any judgment against others we might have. Allow your hearts to connect with the passions of Jesus, the compassions of the Lord towards other people, even for evildoers in your sphere. Again, James 2, verse 8. 
Your calling is to fulfill the royal law of love as given to us in this scripture. You must love and value your neighbor as you love and value yourself. And isn't that great? Because wasn't it Jesus who told the story about loving your neighbor? And the question was, who's my neighbor? And then he tells a story about a Samaritan being awesome. For keeping this law is the noble way to live. So friends, that's what I have to share from James 2. And I hope it helped you in some way. Maybe challenged you a little bit. Maybe made you a little uncomfortable. Maybe you have more questions than they have answers right now. Um, Let me just say that I'm grateful for that journey that the Lord took me on that tall ship around the southeast cape of Tasmania because it helped me connect more deeply with his compassion for all humanity. And he causes the sun to rise and the rains to fall on the good and the evil because he is kind to all. So with that, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for revealing your kindness to us this morning. Thank you that you are that precious, priceless piece of art that has been on display, and you are a picture, an exact replica of God the Father. Like, we actually worship a Christ-like God. Like, Jesus, you said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. So it's not like we're talking about two gods. It's not like we're talking about Jesus, the good God, and God of the Old Testament, the bad God. who has no patience. Thank you for the story of Nineveh. Thank you for having compassion on people who were so far away from you. And thank you for sending someone, not only Jonah, but Jesus. And thank you, God, for all the ways that you want to send us. And so, Lord, we just ask for your grace to navigate the complexities of our life with so much division in the world, so many strong opinions, little room for nuance. Empower us with your love by your Holy Spirit so that we can see people through the lens of your compassion. And I pray, God, that as we walk this out, you will simultaneously help us re, I don't know, just reclaim our sure footing. Lord, I don't know how to pray sometimes, so help me. So you know that verse that says he's taken us out of the miry clay gunk and put us on a solid rock? So thank you, Jesus, that while we're standing on the solid rock, we can be kind to all. We do not have to compromise who we are, who you are, what your truth is, what you've led us into and through and towards. I think I'm picking up like this, there's a fear that if we're kind to people who we read in Scripture like God doesn't approve of, then somehow we're like being incongruent in our beliefs. 
But Jesus, you're showing us that it really does hinge on loving others. In fact, you would go so far as to say all of the law can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. And that's not a, that's not a compromise of our beliefs. That's actually stepping more firmly into them. So Lord, help us as we navigate all of this. Give us like a real assurance that you're going to walk with us even if it means a deconstruction or a restoration, like even if we can identify with Jonah or maybe the Sons of Thunder, where we get angry and irritated and upset when we're in the company of, quote, evildoers. So Lord, teach us your ways. And as we sang this morning, Lord, related to like saying yes to you, saying yes, we say yes to your move, like maybe this is part of the movement here. So we pray all this in your name, Jesus, and thank you for your kindness to us this morning. And thank you for the rain that has fallen on this earth. And I ask, Lord, that you would keep wildfires from sparking this summer. And I pray this in your name, Christ. Amen. Amen. It's our joy to offer these podcasts. We sure hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any prayer requests, feel free to drop us a line at Fellowship at iCloud.com. If you're curious about ways you can be more deeply involved in this community, visit our website at EmmausFellowship.org and be sure to like our Facebook page. 